junior church is dismissed. If you'd like to turn to your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We're going to be actually in verses 9 to the end of the chapter, but then I will, I'll read that later on. There have been many times throughout human history, those times of great response to the gospel. Now, and again, you can very quickly come and say, yes, this is when a great a number of people turn to God. You go, go back to... Nineveh and Jonah, you could talk about the day of Pentecost when a great movement of the Spirit and many people got saved. But you can even go four or five hundred years from now or in the past to the Reformation, 16th century. You could go here in America and in, uh, in uh, Britain and talk about the Great Awakening. Again, in, in America in the 18th century. And again, during these times, there was a powerful movement of God uh, to save people. Many, many hundreds and then thousands would get saved. Have faith in Jesus Christ. True revival would break out because God's Spirit was moving in the hearts of men. About a hundred years ago, a college student from Wales named Evan Roberts felt a passion for revival. Returning to his village in Logor, he preached to 17 people, and, and his sermon was very simple. It basically had four points. The first one was, as he's preaching to these 17 people, confess any known sin to God and put away any wrong done to others. Sounds simple, but for sinful people, it's very difficult to do that at times. Number two, put away any doubtful habit. If it, if it was a question mark whether or not you should do it, he said, put it away. Number three, obey the Holy Spirit promptly. <laughs> like, do it now, not wait. And number four, confess faith in Christ openly. So confess any known sin to God, put away your doubtful habits, obey the Holy Spirit promptly, and confess faith in Christ openly. In other words, be one who spreads the gospel. By the week's end, 60 people had been converted. Within three months, 100,000 converts were added to the church in Wales. This was the great Wales revival. The revival spread around the globe, and, and between the years 1904 and 1911, are remembered as the last years in which our world has experienced a truly global revival. A personal Look at any of the uh, like church dictionaries talking about revival. Go right back to the whale revival. It was huge, but it all started with one person preaching four points to 17 people. But the idea is get right with God, be willing to let the Spirit of God use you, and then speak openly of Christ. Now we say that's pretty simple, but think about your own life. Many times we have hidden sin, Many times we do those doubtful habits. Many times the Spirit of God is not controlling us. And many times we don't share Christ openly. And yet we keep praying for revival. Again, we're going to be looking at revival today. Uh, from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, there's a huge innumerable multitude that gets saved during the tribulation period. 
Now again, as we are going towards the, uh, this passage, I, I want to just remind you of, of a characteristic of God. Because a couple weeks ago, we looked at God and we said that He was a God of vengeance and wrath. And in a number of pa- passages in the Old and New Testaments, you can see that. That God even says He has the clothes of vengeance. But you know, our God is also a God of mercy and of grace and of love, and he is a saving God. He wants to save people. I think sometimes in our understanding his justice and his righteousness and his vengeance and his wrath, we forget that he is a loving, merciful, saving God. Like in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it says, declares that he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He does desire that men come to him 2 Peter 3.9, many of you could quote this, the Lord is not slack concerning His what? Promise, as some count slackness, but is what? Long-suffering or patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 4.10 says God is, is designated as the Savior of all men. And especially to those who believe. Now you might say, what do you mean he's the savior of all men? Are all men saved? Is, do, we, do you believe in universalism, John? Like universalism is where in the end everybody gets saved. Even Hitler. No, but think about it this way. He, how do you mean he's a savior of all men? Well, he allows sinners deserving of immediate death and immediate hell to continue to live under what we call common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. We are, not, we are not immediately destroyed because He is patient, not just with believers, but with all men. He is patient with all men. But then at the end of that verse 10, it says, especially to those who believe. So He does distinguish between believers and unbelievers, but He says He's patient with everyone. He's patient, patient with Ahmadinejad, former president of Iran, right? He's patient. He was patient with Hitler. He, he, take any person, he's patient because they don't get immediately zapped because of their sin. See, this, this needs to be an encouragement to us. In fact, Gertrude, since your hand is in uh, Revelation, just go over to Titus chapter... Just ch- Titus, actually. I just want to have you see this because six times uh, he is called Savior. Titus is actually a very evangelistic book. The book of Titus, just three chapters, six times he is called Savior. Look at uh, Titus 1, verse 3. According to the commandment of God our Savior. In fact, you might even want to highlight these. These are Because again, Titus is an evangelistic book. Though written to a pastor, that tells me something. As a pastor, I need to be evangelistic. He's our Savior. By the way, not just Savior from sin in the sense of for salvation, but even after you get saved, he is, he, is, he is rescuing you from the sin as a believer. He's our Savior. How about chapter 1, verse 4? The Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. How about chapter 2, verse 9? Or, excuse me, 10. Not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. That's the Father. How about verse 13? And hope, uh, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
How about chapter 3, verse 4? When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, towards men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing and regeneration. I mean, very familiar passage. Look at verse 6. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. <laughs> Paul, what were you trying to convince Tim, uh, Titus of? <laughs> God is a Savior. God is gracious. God is merciful. He, he wants to bring people to himself. I, sometimes I wonder if I forgot that. Sometimes I forget that. Now again, you have to go according to his path, according to his way as far as receiving his son, but God wants to save. God wants to save. If you're not saved, he wants to save you. And if, and if uh, you have relatives, they, he wants to save them. In fact, that's one of the reasons we do the, the Christmas program. The Christmas program is maybe one of the easiest, one of the hardest to get the gospel out. It's easy because everybody knows the little baby in the manger. It's hard because they only know about the little baby in the manger. See, it's not about the little baby. It's about the, uh, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. That the baby in the manger is coming back as the lion from the tribe of Judah. That he is the sovereign king. That he is the ruler. He's the owner. That's what Revelation is all about. That you need to receive him. You, you, you can't manipulate God. You can't have him as your personal pet. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is the Lord. And you must submit to him. You must bow before him and receive him. That's why sometimes it's hard. But again, we have opportunity. I, to, I hope you take this opportunity. There's all kinds of cards out there. Give them out. Hopefully the Christmas program, either they're there, they, the person that doesn't know Jesus Christ is confronted with the truths of Christ, that He is the Savior and they receive Him there, or that you follow up. Because see, you want to make sure they understand He is the Savior. He is the Savior. He's the Redeemer. He's our only hope. <laughs> now, because we, we've been looking at the book of Revelation, I want to give you a quick overview with the idea of Jesus Christ God the Father is the save. They're the, they are a saving God. Okay, they, and the Spirit of God comes along and and uh, and uh, convicts and brings to life so that we might be saved. So the Trinity is at work. Uh, it's the Father's plan. It's Jesus Christ is the one who died, and it's the Spirit of God who who plants life into us and understanding so that we might believe. It's you. If you are saved here today, it's because the Trinity worked in your life. But as we look at Revelation, again, uh, because it is such a potentially, I'm going to say it this way, because it's such a potentially negative book, it is laid out that there are going to be respites of encouragement. There's going to be times that you're in the book of Revelation and you're not going to be saying, oh, what horrors of horrors, the death and destruction God is bringing on this earth, but you're going to be exalting God. And we've seen this a number of times. Again, chapter 1, we see Jesus Christ highly exalted, especially in verses 12 to the end. The glorious Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, we're back on earth. And we see the churches. Some of them are really, really walking with Jesus, some aren't. But again, Jesus Christ is working through His church. And with each one of those churches, He says He overcomes. The idea is there's hope. See, the book of Revelation is a very hopeful book. Sometimes people look at it either confusing or they say it this way, oh, look at all that death and destruction. I want to stay away from that. No, no, it's very glorious because Jesus Christ 
you see him reigning and ruling and, and executing God the Father's plan. And then immediately, chapter 4, you're in heaven. In chapter 5, you're in heaven, and, and you see the worship of the, the angels and the four living creatures before God, chapter 4, before Christ, chapter 5. That's glorious, that's hopeful, that's encouragement. What we find, chapter 6, the seal, judgments begin to be opened. See, the scroll, remember Christ receives a scroll in chapter 5. Now in chapter 6, the seals are being broken. And with each one that's broken, there's a catastrophe that happens on the earth. The first one is false peace. The second one is war. The third is famine, chapter verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. And then there's death. And then you see the martyrs in verse, verse 9. And then you see a great earthquake and death and destruction in the sixth seal, which is verses 12 to the end. Okay, that's negative. And yet hope, martyrs, I mean, as far as they're with God. But then we got to chapter 7. And again, God wants to really cement in our minds, whoever is reading this book, that he is in control and that be encouraged. Be encouraged, no matter what's happening on this earth, be encouraged. And we see in chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, the, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. The 144,000. Again, this is verses 1 to 8. I won't read the text. We did it last week. But these are male Jewish believers. Again, according to chapter 7, and you have to read chapter 14, these were redeemed ones, again, believers, who were saved at, at the start, I believe, of the tribulation. In other words, when the church exits through the rapture, there is a void of, there's no witness for a moment of time on this earth because the church has been removed. And I believe that at that moment, the, this group of Jews are going to, whoa, I thought we were the center. I thought we were the apple of God's eye. Well, they get saved. But I believe, just by, and again, I'm not going to stake my life on this, but I believe that by the time you get to chapter 7, and they are sealed, that that's probably either at the end or the very beginning of the first, of the three and a half years. Okay, so I believe there's been a time frame. The tribulation, remember, is broken up in two three and a half year segments. We won't go there, but... I believe that these are sealed. These Jewish evangelists are sealed. They could be sealed at the beginning. I, I actually think they probably were saved at the beginning and sealed. And again, the sealing is not salvation. They were sealed so that no person, nothing could hurt them. That their witness would be, would be continuous because you couldn't stop them. But again, they get sealed and they are persevering. And again, in the middle of the tribulation, uh, they are... They are basically set aside. The ceiling refers to God's ownership over them, God's protection upon them. They can't be killed. <laughs> they can't be killed. I'm sure that really frustrates the evil one. <laughs> they can't be killed. They just keep going around telling the truth. They're the witnesses. But again, their ministry is so effective that by the power of God, there is an innumerable multitude that is saved. Okay, So what did, we, what did we understand in Revelation 7? That God, again, is in control. He is merciful. He is merciful not just to Gentiles, but He is merciful to the Jewish state. He saves 144,000 Jewish men. Okay, Or to say it this way, God always preserves His truth 
and he preserves his own. Or to say it this way, you're not going to exit this earth until God wants you to. That brings a lot of encouragement to me. Okay, Lord, I'm on this path, and I'm not going to leave this earth until you want me to. And help me to remember that in those dark days of my life. That, that my life, are num- my life my, the days of my life are numbered, and, and, and you hold the number, right? You're the one in control. So if I'm told that I have cancer, help me remember, I won't leave this earth until you want me to leave this earth, right? That's, what it, that's one of the messages out of the 144,000. They're sealed. He has a purpose, and his purpose will be accomplished. We have to remember these things. Again, chapter 7 is that intermission. It's that interlude between chapter 6, which is the breaking of the seals up to the seventh seal, and chapter 8, which is the breaking of the seventh seal, which then introduces the seven trumpet judgments, and then further on, the seven bold judgments. So before you go from the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments, God says, you know, for those who are going to read this book, I want to give them encouragement. I want to show them that I'm in control. I've got 144,000. Not only are they not going to die, but they're going to be preaching truth. Because my truth is always going to be prevalent. I'm going to have a truth teller on this earth. Right now, it should be the church. But once the church leaves, who's going to fill the vacuum? The 144,000. God will always have uh, his messengers of truth. Now you say, why wouldn't women be also... well? For the 144,000 sealed, they're male. But for the innumerable multitude, that's male and female of all tribes and nations. We'll see that in a moment. In fact, let's go there. Let's, let's read this because we, get, we now move from the 144,000 in verse 8 to the innumerable multitude in verse 9 of chapter 7. And there's, a, there's a implied something implied here that the innumerable multitude, though it's not said, most likely, most likely, 99.9% sure, they get saved because of the ministry of the 144,000. Someone brings them truth. Okay, let's look at, let me read verses 9 to 17. After these things, I look, what do you mean these things? Well, after the the, uh, sealed judgments begin to be opened in chapter 6, and after the 144,000 are sealed. By the way, just one last little note. Remember, they were sealed, look at verse 3. It, remember the, the angels holding the winds in verses 1 and 2, and it says, don't do anything until verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. By the way, that is the trumpet judgment. You go to Revelation 8, the next chapter, verses 1 to whatever, and that's what's happening. The earth, the sea, and the trees are being harmed. But the, the winds are being held back, and God says, don't hurt anything until, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, which is 144,000. So while this death and destruction happens in, in the first six seals, now before the seventh seal is broken, the trumpet judgments start, he says, hold it back, I'm going to seal the 144,000, they're going to be my witnesses, so that through the, the terror of the last three and a half years, even though there's going to be death and destruction and terror like the earth has never seen, there'll be, there'll be destruction that a Hollywood producer could never imagine. There'll be death and destruction like, I think, uh, environmentalists that believes in global warming could never imagine. Okay? But before that all happens, i got to seal my witnesses because 
I will have truth during the worst time of human history. And actually, there will be the greatest revival during that time as well. Look at verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. It's incalculable. And then he says, not just of the nation of Israel, of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So there's God the Father, God the Son. Clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation washed and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple and, and He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them any, uh, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we move from the 144,000 to the innumerable multitude. From the witnesses who are on the earth to those who have been killed that are in heaven. Okay? And again, it's implied that the multitude got saved because of the ministry of the 144,000. Which again, just goes back to that, that point I just made, that even during the most horrific wrath and judgments that are being poured out on the earth, people are still being saved. In fact, many thousands and millions are getting saved. Why? Because the fact is this, that saving the lost is one of God's chief purposes for the tribulation period. Now I want you to get that. Saving the lost is one of God's chief purposes for the tribulation period. I'll give you a little side note, it wasn't in my notes, but if it's true that the, the, the war of Gog and Magog, which is basically a leader, and then the, basically it turns out to be Russia, northern Russia, Turkey, many of where the Muslim nations are right now. That's, if you go back in uh, Ethiopia and put in all those places, that's basically, it's just all the nations around Israel. That's the war of Gog and Magog, which is different than Armageddon most likely happening at the very beginning of the tribulation. God wipes out that whole section, probably, and then that's what, what allows Antichrist to set up, because, see, they've been wiped out. They're no longer a threat. But I only say it this way, that if it is true that that's the timing and the sequence, then most likely many of these 144,000 are previous Muslims. Because Allah has been disproved to be great, they, their armies have just been wiped out. Now, if your army is in, in your jihad and your, you know, war is everything and Allah is going to create victory and all of a sudden Gog and Magog happens, which is majority Muslim, and they're wiped out, they're like, their draw drops and it's like, that's not truth. We're finding truth. 144,000 are preaching the true gospel and I believe many of these people are Muslim, previous Muslims. 
God is rescuing people. One of the chief purposes of the tribulation is for God to save people. Well, to save a person, you have to break them. And they'll be broken. Let me answer one other question, because I've heard this around before, and they, it goes something like this, that if before the tribulation you've been hurt, you, let's say this tribulation starts right here, the rapture happens, and be over here in this time frame right now, you've heard the truth, and you rejected the truth, therefore you can never get saved in the tribulation. You ever hear that? I've heard that a number of times. If you hear the truth before the rapture and tribulation begins, then if you are in the tribulation, there is no hope for you. You can't get saved. And they take it out of a particular passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. You may want to turn there, just for reference. It says this, verses 9 to 12. It says, The coming of the lawless one, that's Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, this is 2 Thessalonians 2.9, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So in other words, what they're saying is, they receive, they, well let's go on, verse 11. For this reason God will send them a strong delusion, and they should, that they should believe a lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Uh, so what, is, what do many people say? Well, see, they had the opportunity to believe. They did not receive the love of the truth, verse 10. Therefore, God gave them a strong delusion. The idea is they rejected the, the truth before the tribulation. Then Antichrist sets up and God gives them a delusion after the tribulation begins. One little point. It's all talking about the tribulation. It's, he's not referring to now. He's saying, listen, once the tribulation starts, Antichrist is going to be setting himself up as ultimately God in the, in the last three and a half years. And if you find yourself in the tribulation and you look to him and reject the truth, again, of the 144,000, and you look to him for your hope, that's Antichrist, God will send a delusion on those people and then you'll have no hope, okay? So it's really not talking about before and during. It's all during. Or to say it this way, once a person puts their faith and trust and hope in Antichrist, there is no hope for that person. That's the, that's the turning point. That's what 2 Thessalonians 2.9 is saying. That's the turning point. But again, it doesn't have to do with today. I, I, I say that because sometimes, oh, you know, is there any hope? No, there's going to be an innumerable multitude. And for sure, there's going to be people who came, you know, thinking they were saved. I'm sure there's going to be some churches that are totally full after the rapture. And they just go back to church. And, but then they realize, wait a second, we're not part of the body. We're not true believers. And then they start to see the, the chaos that's happening on the earth and they're looking for truth and they get saved. They heard the truth, but they get saved during the tribulation. Okay, enough of that. Just a kind of a side thought. But again, God will use the horror of the tribulation period to bring millions of sinners to faith in His Son. Praise God. I mean, he's a, isn't He gracious? He is such a gracious Savior. He wants to see people come to Him. 
Well, let's look at their, the different parts of this. First of all, their description. After these things, I looked. And by the way, the word looked and behold is like a startling. They're, he's startled. John is startled. He went from the, the six seals being opened in chapter 6. Then he saw the 144,000. But now, you know, now it says, and after these things, I, I looked and behold. He was startled because he saw this, enumer- this incalculable multitude of people. It just woo, startled him. Because again, these people were from what? All nations and tribes and peoples and tongues. Again, remember, John is on the island of Patmos. Uh, he is by himself, or he's got other, but he's probably living in a cave. I mean, he, from a worldly standpoint, he's on the losing team. All of his fellow disciples, uh, apostles have been killed. He's writing a letter to seven churches, but all of them are struggling. See, he needs hope. <laughs> he needs encouragement. And now he's seen the judgment. I'm sure that's been you know, an encouragement. Okay, uh, you know, God is going to judge evil. And he sees 144,000, but now he's like startled because he sees this multitude that no one could number. So that's the description. And again, different from the Jews. The Jews in a, the first eight verses, they were numbered. They were standing on the earth. They were Jews. This group is... Innumerable, they were Gentiles and Jews, not able to be numbered. And we find out in a moment, standing before the throne. This is a separate group. Some, some commentators try to put this group together. I don't know how you can do that. And notice what they are, they are wearing. They are clothed in white robes. The, the word is the robe stole. It's this long, length, fully, uh, full, flowing robe. That's what they were wearing. By the way, they used to wear those robes for festive occasions, celebrations. It is used, actually, of Christ, that he wore a white robe in Matthew 17. And it refers to perfection, this white robe, this dazzling, because that's what the word white means, not just white, but dazzling, brilliant, shining, long robe, fully covering the person, used of Christ for his perfection, used of angels for their perfection. Again, different than the Lord's, he's God. Angels, but again, angels had a choice, and when they fell, they were called demons, and they are forever demons, they are forever evil. Angels, when they made the choice, you see that Revelation, we'll look at that in a little bit, Revelation 12. But the point is, is this, if, if, if they're good angels now, they will forever be good angels. They, didn't, they don't have to repent and get saved, is either they made the right choice or the wrong choice, and for an angel, there's no redemption. That's important for the last part of this text. But the point of this is, these, this innumerable multitude is clothed with white robes, which shows that they also have what? Not an not a, uh, earned righteousness, but they have an imputed righteousness from God himself. They have white robes on, not only that, but they're holding palm branches in their hands. That's, a, that's also associated with celebration and joy. Uh, you see palm branches, like say in the Old Testament, with the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember the Feast of Tabernacles? Um, it was to celebrate God providing for Israel during their years of wandering. I remember when I was in Israel, it was during that time of year, and they would go out and, 
and a Jewish person out of palm branches would make a booth and they would live in there. And what they were saying is, God, even during the times of wandering, you provided for us. You gave us sustenance. You gave us protection. And literally, uh, in Israel, Jerusalem, you saw all these, right outside the really nice homes, you'd see this little hut. And it was made out of palm branches and they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. But again, God's provision. You also see that as far as joy and celebration when Jesus comes walking into the temple. Remember, they were waving palm branches and saying this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They were exuberant. They were grateful. They were celebrating. So when it says that this innumerable multitude was wearing what? Clothed with white robes and in their hands palm branches. It was, it's representing they were made righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, right? By the way, they are glorified. They, they are righteous because of Christ's righteousness and they are celebrating. They're grateful. How about the second part? Not only their description, but their location, standing before the throne. They're not on earth like the 144,000. They're in heaven. They're before the throne, which is God, and before the Lamb. But notice what it says, that second part of verse 9, they are standing. Standing. That's, that's important. And you say, well, why is that important? What, what is that? Why, do, why do we care about that? Because in the last verse of chapter 6, it is said this, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who's able to stand? But now we've seen two groups of people who are able to stand. We have the 144,000, they're sealed, they're standing as it were. In other words, they're not being hurt by the wrath of the Lamb. And we also have this innumerable multitude. They're standing though, not on earth, but they're standing in heaven. They are standing before the throne. Now think about that. They are standing before the throne. You didn't stand before any emperor's throne back then. When you approached the emperor, you were on your face. And yet these are children of God. Okay? These are the protected one. We have seen in, in, in verses 1 to 8 and 9 to 17, two groups of protected ones. They're able to stand. They are before, and they are protected. Now you say, yeah, well, the 144,000, they're protected. Well, yeah, it is true that the innumerable multitude most likely got martyred during that last, but they're now protected. <laughs> okay, when it's all said and done, you might be hurt on this earth and you might die, but let me tell you, that's even protection there, right? Because once you get to heaven, nothing can happen to you. Nothing can happen to you. So again, that's the location. How about their activity? And they're crying out with a loud voice. They're crying out. That's a very familiar passage or a word, crying out or loud voice, saying, not singing, saying. They, which reminds me that when we sing, and it's good to sing, okay? It is good to sing. But make sure, see, the idea of saying means comprehension. That as we sing, let's be, remember to, uh, to comprehend what we're singing. You ever... Have you ever sang a song and not comprehended it? You just sang it, you know, and it's kind of a little ditty in your head and you just kind of move on. And, and like, no, no, when we are worshiping the Lord, they were saying just all comprehension, focus. But they said, this is what they were saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, God is a saving God. 
This is what the redeemed martyrs are doing. They're constantly crying out with a, oh, wait a second, with a very calm and quiet voice. No, with a loud voice. God likes things loud. But isn't that what it says? By the way, chapter Revelation 5.12, we read that earlier, it says loud. Chapter 6, verse 10, we read that earlier, it says loud. Chapter 11, verse 12 and 15, chapter 12, verse 10, chapter 19, verse 1, it all says they sang with a loud, or said with a loud voice. God likes things loud. Not screaming, not out of control, but enthusiastic. This last Thursday, I was able to go to Brent's and watch a football game. <sighs> I won't say anything about the football game, only just think, I was thinking about it, like, you know, I wonder how many people are totally ecstatic about this football game. Like, if you were walking in their house, they're Christians, and they are yelling and screaming, and sometimes against the other team who ended up winning, or, you know, they're just, but they are excitable. And when they made the touchdown, they are celebratory, right? They're celebrating. And these, I'm sure for about three hours, there are high emotions and low emotions, high emotions, low emotions, high emotions, and finally low emotions. <laughs> you know what I thought would be really sad? If we worship the King of Kings with any less enthusiasm. Because it says it was loud. Oh, I think that's really sad. I think that's really sad. The King of Kings, the Savior, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, that's just the New Testament. No, Psalm 66, 1. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. And you can look it up in Psalms 100. But the idea is God wants us to be enthusiastic about him. So we're going to have a chance in just a couple minutes. Let's be enthusiastic. But notice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Again, salvation through the blood of Christ. We saw this in Revelation 5, 9. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. See, we've seen this tribe and tongue and people and nation over and over again. God wants to make it very clear in the book of Revelation, this is not just for the Jew. The Jew is still in focus, but there's going to be a people from every tribe and nation and tongue that's going to get saved. And it's all through one avenue, one path, through the blood of Christ, through the sacrifice that he made. And we see this great multitude in chapter 19, verse 1, when he comes back. We're all with him. Okay? So what's the occupation of heaven? Continual praise. And that's a good point to uh, ask ourselves. Are we continually praising God? Or is it just something we do on Sunday morning and we have to endure it for about 15 minutes and we're not really into it that much? And we're, or is it something that's burning in our soul? Many of us, it's not. At times, it's not in mind. No, no, we need to get there because that pleases God. So that's their activity. And then their company, notice, and all the angels stood around. This is verse 11, around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying what? Amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power. That same list pretty much is exact. You see it in chapter 4 and 5. In other words, those are the elements. Blessing, glory, wisdom. It's all yours. It's all because of you. But, but notice the innumerable, I mean, uh, the angels. 
I mean, it says in Revelation 5.11 that the angels couldn't be counted. It's 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands. Again, the angels are beyond calculation. But I want to bring the angels and the innumerable multitude of humans together here. That's the company. We're taking... These are in company with the angel. By that point, I believe we're already up there. We're in company with the angels. They're not redeemed. We are. They have never known wickedness. We have. As one man said, that wretched, unworthy... That, excuse me. That wretched, unworthy sinners can freely mingle with the pristine holy angels is a triumph of God's grace that makes the angels glorify God all the more. Because they're standing beside wretched sinners who used to be. And they're saying, praise God to you, Lord, you're gracious. He goes on, this commentator, these people had turned their backs on God, rejected the gospel, or in some case never heard it, and not being part of the church had missed the rapture. So in the midst of God's wrath and judgment during the tribulation, he will remember mercy and gather them to himself. The wonder of God's gracious salvation, again, a subject about which angels are curious, having never experienced it themselves. Angels have never experienced salvation themselves. In fact, 1 Peter 1.12 says this, things which angels desire to look into. They are curious when a, Christ, or a, a sinner gets saved because they've never been redeemed. Those who sinned that were angels were cast out of heaven. Okay, So they're curious. But again, these angels displayed before the angels uh, stimulate them to praise and worship. We find that in Ephesians 3. Though angels do not experience salvation, they rejoice at the salvation of humans. Luke 15, verse 7. Likewise, I say to you, there is, more joy, in, uh, there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. So that's their company. S sinners who've been saved along with, as it were, pristine angels. Okay? And they're worshiping God just to say, look at that wretch saved by the blood of the Lamb, worshiping God before His throne in the Lamb. Number five, their identification. Then one of the elders answered and said, who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? A, two very, very important questions. And really what happens is... Uh, John says, well, you know who they are. And by the way, he asked the question so that not only John made sure he knew who they were, but so that we know who they are. And he answers. And he actually answers in reverse order. He asked the question, who and where. Now the answer is where and who. Where do they come from? So he said to them, these are the ones who come out of the Great Tribulation. What do you mean Great Tribulation? Remember, Tribulation is seven years. The first three and a half years is is bad, but nothing like the last great tribulation, last three and a half years. They come out of the great tribulation. But who are these? These are, these are washed, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are redeemed tribulation saints. So they come out of the last three and a half years, I believe. But again, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They've washed their robes. Finally, I'm going to just bullet six things. Six things. 
We've looked at their description and their location and their company and association and all that. Let's, let's just look at the promise. Their, their guarantee. Their guarantee. Who are these ones? And again, it's obvious, but let's, because he, he really spe- specifies at the very end, he gives us, these are the promises to those who have received my son, which has huge implication to your life. Because if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we are also amongst that multitude. This is what happens to us as well. You see why he writes chapter 7 in the midst of the seal judgment and the trumpet judgments of chapter 8. He gives us an intermission and he shows us the glory of God, the glory of heaven, the glory of his throne, just glory after glory, all pointing to God's graciousness. Look at their guarantee, six things. First of all, they know the joy of the forgiveness of their sins. In fact, I would say this, they fully know the joy of their salvation. Why? Because they've washed their robes. That's forgiveness. And they have made them white. That's justification. In other words, they stand, this group stands holy and righteous before the Lord, not because of their own righteousness, but because of the virtue of the Lamb's blood. Because the Lamb's blood has been applied to their life. So they... They know the joy of forgiveness. They know the joy of salvation. In other words, they know the joy of never having to endure the penalty or the punishment for their sin. They will never be punished for their sin. Do you get that? They will never be punished for their sin. The punishment of their sin was placed on Christ, on the cross. They will never be punished because they stand in white robes. Now, it doesn't mean that they won't be chastised. You've got to distinguish this if you're a Christian. The difference between punishment for your sin and chastisement. Chastisement, as Hebrews 12 says, is what? As the Father loves the Son, so the Father, God the Father, loves us. And yes, He will bring pain into our life because of our sin, but it's not for punishment. The punishment of those sins has already been placed on the cross. But we may be chastised so that we might be educated. That's what chastisement is, is education, instruction. If you're a parent, don't you do that with your own kids? I mean, let's face it. The reason that you put pain into your child's life is because you hate your kid. And you're going to make them pay. I tell you what, if that's you, get out of the parenting business. Actually, get right with it. Don't get out of it. Get, get right with it. But the point is, is this. Why do you chastise? Because you want to instruct them and educate them in the way that they should go. Now, when it comes to the Father, this is the difference. Our sins have been paid for. You're not punished for your sins as a Christian. No Christian is. You are chastised because God wants to educate you. He wants you to see that the path of sin is not worth it. It's too much pain. He wants to make you become like his son. And he'll go through great lengths to chastise you so that you will. Right. So that's the first thing about They are forgiven. How about number two? They know the joy of serving. Therefore, verse 15, or the New American says, for this reason they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. They're serving, again, in his temple. This is uh, priestly terms. These Christians, these saved out of the great uh, tribulation, are now serving. It's interesting, that same word serve is used over in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the what? The mercies of God. That's mercy of God. 
that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is what? Your reasonable service. There it is. Actually, Romans 12 is in priestly terms. It's, in fact, one version says this. It's, it's your spiritual act of worship. Why are you saved? Well, you're saved to become like Christ. You're saved to be one of God's children. One of the reasons you get saved, though, is to serve Him. To serve Him. And, and, and you're supposed to serve Him now. You should serve Him on this earth. If you're a Christian, you should be serving. And you know how you serve God? If you love God, you love His children. You serve His children. You serve others. You serve by using your spiritual gift. You serve by using your time. You serve by giving your what you have as far as abilities and natural abilities and spiritual abilities and finances, you serve. But this is the thing. In heaven, you're still serving. Oh, I thought I was going to... I thought I was going to... All I was going to do in heaven was like drink lemonade beside the pool. You talk... No, no. In fact, the great privilege in heaven is as you have been faithful to serve here you will be given greater responsibility, you find this in Matthew 25, to serve there. That it, it is the greatest of all privileges to have a greater responsibility to serve God in heaven. And the way that you earn that right, if I will, because it's a reward, is that you serve faithfully here. Okay, Serving is a privilege. Serving is a privilege. Number three, they know the joy of being sheltered and protected. Look at the last part of verse 15. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. That's tabernacle. In fact, just write this down. Isaiah 4, verse 5 and 6. It, it, it's speaking of uh, God tabernacling among Israel and that the Gentiles would be brought in. What do you mean? That he's going to protect. He's going to tabernacle. Because let's face it, if God is in your midst, you're protected. <laughs> Okay, it's like a marriage canopy. They're protected. They belong to him. It's the equivalent of John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life. Not six-month life. Not ten-year life. I give unto them eternal life. And if one saint loses their salvation, then God is not speaking truth. It is a terrible thing to say that God gives to some eternal life, someone eternal life, and then takes it back from them. No, these are the protected one. They're sheltered and they will never have to fear damnation, both on earth and even in heaven. You don't ever see anybody being kicked out of heaven. Oh, the angel or the angels were that sinned. But we are protected. Number four, they know the joy of satisfaction. They, they will neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. You know, well, you know what he's referring to? Tribulation. They had experienced those things. Hunger, thirst, right? Heat. I mean, those are the, those are the judgments of the tribulation. But now they're protected. And then f- number five, they know the joy of eternal shepherding. Verse 17, the lamb who's in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, feed them, shepherd them. It's interesting because usually lambs are shepherded, but this lamb is the one shepherding. And he knows their needs. He's the lamb that was been slain before the foundation of the world. He, he knows them. He's our high shepherd, or excuse me, our high priest. He's the shepherd that's the high priest who knows 
our faults and frailties, he had to endure the same types of temptation, Hebrews 4. So he's eternally shepherding. I like what uh, Lewis Schaefer, he's president of Dallas Theological Seminary many, many years ago. He used to talk about the old rugged cross. The old rugged cross. And I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. And he used to say this, we will never exchange anything for the old rugged cross. That is the foundation of our salvation. He used to get a little ticked. We will never exchange anything for the cross. No, it's always going to be that he was the, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We see this even in Revelation. And then finally, they know the joy of continual sustaining and, and, and lead them. This is the lamb and leads them to living fountains of water. By the way, it's plural, not fountain. Fountains, plural. Why? Because it's just going to continue over and over, progressions of joy, progressions of blessing. It is just continually will be a growing experience of blessing. He just leads and there's protection. And though the earth is, is completely being destroyed, they are safe and protected and secure. Let me just go back to one final point and we're done. Look at verse 14. It, it's a very odd thing to be honest with you. Because when, when, he's, when John is, be told, is, is told where and what, who these people are, notice what he says. They come out of the great tribulation, look, and, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's really curious. Because I would have expected John to say this, and they were washed, and they were made. No, no, he puts that in the active, not passive. See, we talk much about God's sovereignty, and I believe absolutely that God is sovereign. God is sovereign in salvation. God is sovereign in calling people to himself, even choosing before the foundation of the world. But in this part right here, God wants us to know that you have a responsibility. See, this is in the active. It says they, they wash their robes. Now again, he's not getting at the fact that they saved themselves. Because he was very clear in the blood of the Lamb. In the blood. But the point is, is this. They personally took responsibility to receive what Christ did on the cross on their behalf. See, that's human responsibility. That's why, like in Acts 16, verse 31, it doesn't say that God is going to want be the one who makes you believe. It says this. Believe. That's in the active voice. And it's in the imperative. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You can say to any person that command. That is a universal command. In fact, you need to, first of all, determine, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in what he did on the cross? Do you believe that he is the only Savior and the only Lord and he is coming back to judge this earth because he is the rightful heir of this world? But you can also say that to any person that you come in contact with that has never received Christ. You need to believe. What do you mean I need to believe? If God is going to save me, he's going to save me. I know about God's sovereignty. Yeah, there's God's sovereignty, but there's also human responsibility. And these people, they washed their, their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They were the one. Why? 
because they were the ones that received. They took human responsibility, and when the message was preached to them, they said, yes, I want to receive Christ. Have you ever received Christ? Have you ever bent the knee and submitted to His Lordship and being the only Savior and said, Lord, I am a wicked sinner deserving of condemnation, but thank you that your Father sent you and you out of obedience walked a perfect life for 30 plus years and went to the cross and died a perfect death, not for your sin, but for mine. And I'm putting my faith and hope and trust and reliance on you. And I bend the knee. Have you ever done that? And if you have, are you about the business? Remember the Welsh revival? One of the things is make him known through your life. Are you sharing the gospel? Perhaps that's the greatest sin of current evangelicalism. We are, we are not bold with the gospel. And I encourage you, maybe just through the Christmas program, take and start, get opportunity to have a door open. Hopefully the person comes to the Christmas program, then you can follow up and say, what do you think? Not, it's not just about a baby. That's the, that's the Lord. He came as a baby. He's coming back next time as the lion. And, we, and you need to submit to him. Believe. You can say that. Acts 16.31, believe. Active imperative. It's a command. In fact, when people stand before the Lord on that final day of judgment, great white throne, and they are cast alive into the lake of fire, the greatest sin that they have committed against God is they didn't believe. I came, I commanded you to do something you did not do. Believe. It makes it real simple, really. It's very, very simple. We are calling people to obedience to what God has done through Christ his Son. So I trust that you will, again, first of all, receive Christ if you haven't, but if you have, be about his business of, of telling others about his love and his sacrifice and do it in a way that's honoring to him. Even command them. Show them. It, it, you are commanded to do this. You need to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we worship him.